Okay. Well, we're going to continue in our study of the Beatitudes, sitting at the feet of Jesus, the brilliant teacher. He is so much more than a brilliant teacher, but he is certainly not less. And to prioritize the words of Jesus and to respond wholeheartedly and obediently leads to the good life. This is what Jesus is leading us into in the Beatitudes time and again at the start of the Sermon on the Mount saying, blessed, makarios, means happy, it means blessed. It's the sort of life that's worthy of envying, that when you see someone who's fulfilling these qualities and characteristics, we go, that is a life worth living. That's the good life as defined by Jesus, who incidentally was the wisest, most brilliant person to ever walk the planet. And this morning, he is sketching out for us the path to real prosperity. The path to real prosperity. Because we live in a cultural moment where we have come to believe, there's kind of a cultural perception that the path to prosperity is really through self-assertion, through strength, through squeezing the competition. I read a couple of years ago the, uh, the book called The Everything Store. It's the part memoir of Jeff Bezos and part story of Amazon. And there's a certain reality that there's, there's stories about Amazon that have become nearly mythical about the way that they squeeze the competition and have just become all pervasive. That there is a certain sense of the exertion of strength and muscle is what leads to winning. And it's easy in some ways to vilify the, the wealthiest on the planet. But what we see in, in, a, in those stories, and those stories that have become mythical cultural stories for us of what it means to lead to prosperity and winning, that we also find it not just true of the wealthiest on the planet, but true in our own hearts. That we have slowly soaked in a cultural narrative that says it is our strength, it is our demanding of rights, It is our clenched fists pounded metaphorically on the table going, I need to get mine, that this is how we get ahead. This is how we carve out our story. Whether or not we ever voice it aloud, we oftentimes carry it. We carry it into our relationships, with our roommates, into marriages, into workplaces, that underneath it all, so much of the unrest and the anger and the division is born out of this place of thinking, When do I get mine? How do I carve out mine? How do I assert myself? Because this is the path to winning and to prosperity. And into a moment and into a context and into a narrative like that, the words of Jesus yet again paint a picture that would render those who obey it an enigma, a riddle, a mystery that we, if we actually trust the words of Jesus, will leave the people around us scratching their heads and going, I don't get it. And just as an aside, if our life with Jesus lived before the watching world isn't causing people to scratch their heads and saying, I don't get it, something may be amiss in our souls. Because as Jesus defines the path to prosperity, this is what he says in his third beatitude. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. In essence, what he is going to say in this his third beatitude is that it's the low, desert, valley, slow road that leads to prosperity. It is the road that runs way down low into the space of saying, I demand nothing. And in my demanding of nothing, I finally, in God's economy, begin to realize what it is to receive everything. 
This is gonna be the invitation as we interact with this third beatitude today, to demand nothing and receive everything as opposed to the cultural narrative and the thing that grips our heart that says, you need to continue to demand everything. Rise up and demand. And in that space to continue, as it were, to to experience the, the disappointment and the slipperiness of all those things that we're laboring to lay hold of. Jesus is gonna seek to set us free from that as he invites us into real prosperity this morning. So it's with that being said that I wanna invite you into this journey as we consider what does it mean to demand nothing, to really embrace meekness, and what does it mean to receive everything, to inherit the earth? So demand nothing, what is meekness? What is this meekness that we experience in Matthew chapter five and and verse five? I'll just make this note as we read Matthew 5, 5, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. I extended an invitation week one. It's not too late to jump in with us to, to memorize these beatitudes as we go. We're only three in. They're all very short and they, they begin to link logically as our hearts resonate with them. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. And this morning, blessed are the meek they shall inherit the earth. What do we mean by meek? If you would go with me on a journey, what I'd like to do is I'd like to take this term meek and like a beautiful, like a beautiful and, and precious jewel, I want to slowly turn it from several different angles. And as we see these different facets, I think we can get a comprehensive understanding of what is it that Jesus is packing into this short phrase, blessed are the meek. And so as we take a first look at it, the invitation is to look at it lexically. What is the word itself? The word itself is only used four times in the New Testament. The word is praus. Can you say that one? Praus. Yeah, good. It's our Greek lesson for the day. You got it. You can feel so educated and together. Praus. It's used four times. It's used here twice of Jesus and once in 1 Peter when Peter is encouraging wives to have a gentle spirit in their marriage. But the, the place where Jesus uses in Matthew 11 that you've heard it shaping our liturgy this morning, he actually uses it to define his own heart when he says, I am gentle and lowly of heart. That is prouse of heart. That I am gentle. The posture of prouse is like this, not like this. It is open-handed and meek. It is, it is humble. The way that it gets defined, this, this term as Jesus defines himself in Matthew 11, as he invites us into the blessed life in Matthew 5, this is the way that it gets described by Martin Lloyd-Jones. He says, meekness is not indolence or flabbiness or niceness or compromise. There's part of us that if we think we're taking this posture, it just means I'm always compromising. I don't have, I don't have conviction. He says, it's not that. He says, meekness is a true view of oneself, expressing itself in an attitude and a conduct with respect to others. The meek man or woman does not demand anything for themselves. They don't take all of their rights as claims. They don't make demands for their position or their privileges or their possessions or their status in life. Another commentator, Dale Bruner, says this, he, he defines meek as the little people. And he says the little people are literally those who make no claim for themselves before God or before other people. So if you just examine the word itself, what it is saying is it's taking the low position and saying, I am not in the business of demanding my rights or my privileges. 
In fact, when I show up into a space, if I'm inhabiting meekness, I'm not thinking about me or what I deserve at all. You see, this is Prowse. This is a first look at Prowse. But if you, if you turn it kind of a quarter turn and say, okay, let's think about how would a first century Jewish set of ears receive this? These are the original listeners sitting at Jesus, and he's saying, blessed are the Prowse. They would immediately, those who had had any training in the scriptures, realize that he's quoting a scripture, that he's actually quoting from Psalm 37. And so if you have a Bible, I'd invite you to turn there with me because as we continue to ask what is meant by this term, Psalm 37 begins to give us some color commentary on it. And so I just want to read uh, the first portion of Psalm 37 with you. The, The verses will be on the screen behind me, and if you've got a Bible, you can put your eyes on it for yourself. This is a psalm written by David that is an exposition of prowse, of meekness. This is what he says. Fret not yourselves because of evildoers. Don't be envious of wrongdoers, for they're going to soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord, do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. So he's saying, he's painting this picture. There's wicked people that right now are prosperous. They're on top. And he's going, don't fret and looking at the fact that they, it seems like everything's working out for them. One day, they're going to wither in the, in the bright sun. He says, stick with me. Be a friend of faithfulness. Wait on the Lord. He goes on to say, verse 5, commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord. Wait patiently for him. And then you get this term, fret not. He's already said that once. Fret not yourself over the one who will prosper in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. He says, refrain from anger, forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. It tends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off. But those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. And then verse 11, hear this. But the meek shall inherit the land, or more literally in the Hebrew, the earth. They will inherit the earth. The meek shall inherit the earth, and they will delight themselves in abundant peace. You see, Psalm 37, written by King David, is an expose of this quote that Jesus is issuing in the Beatitudes. And what he said, in the world, we will be tempted to look at people that exert themselves with strength and maybe even outright wickedness with schemes. And it feels like, man, they're always getting ahead. I'm always playing catch up in the workplace or in this relationship because it's the person that is most assertive and aggressive that feels like, man, they're winning. And here I am just trying to do the right thing. And what David is saying is, be patient. The day is coming. Continue to make friends with faithfulness. David was uniquely suited to write this psalm because do you remember how he was prepared to be king? There was a king named Saul that was doing everything according to his own purposes and plans, rejecting God's ways and God's word. And David was living in a cave and running for his own life, no doubt at times thinking, this doesn't seem like the way it was supposed to work out. But he wrote a psalm celebrating the fact that God will bless the meek. David at times had Saul delivered into his hands, but he would not pound his fist and say, this is rightfully mine. He trusted God, he was patient, and he waited, 
And then he wrote a psalm that talked about it. This is a picture of meekness. These are the Old Testament roots. So we've got a word that's defined for us, praus. We've got an Old Testament roots. And then there's the way that the Greek usage of the term would have been in the first century. What they would have heard in their own time. And what they would have heard in their own time reminds me of my friend Dave and his dog Rio. Dave is one of my best friends from high school and he's a mountain man. He's everything that I'm not, which I love him for and sometimes struggle with because he's just such a man, you know? It's like he makes me feel like less of a man. He's one of these guys that like can build anything from the ground up. He drives a big truck. He has a sweet beard. And uh, he lived out in the mountains and he was actually a fly fishing instructor. And then he would protect the land in the winter and fight off coyotes. This guy's cool. And he had a dog named Rio. And it was just he and Rio living in the mountains. And David trained Rio lovingly and daily that this little animal full of wild animal instinct all of a sudden became so beholden to her master that when David and Rio showed up, he'd drive up in his truck. Rio's bouncing around in the back of the truck and he gets out and he would go, I need some water. Imagine I'm whistling like a real man. And uh, he would whistle and the dog would bound out of the back and sit at his feet and just wait. And if he had shot a coyote earlier or done something awesome out in the field, he literally, with a hand signal, he'd go. And Rio would go bounding off several hundred yards in this way. And then he'd whistle again. And Rio would look up and she'd have some animal in her mouth. And then he'd do this and she'd run back and sit at his feet. It's like, this is stunning. What have you done? Because this is not natural for an animal. An animal is not Many of you who've had puppies and had dogs and who haven't stayed with them and trained them consistently, you're going, yeah, yeah, that's not what happens with my dog, right? Because it's not natural. That is the Greek usage of praus, a fully domesticated and trained wild animal that now all of its impulses, all that it's intending to do is now beholden and under the direction of the master, waiting for his whistle or his direction. That's the way that the Greeks would have used the term. And so here you've got this, this word, you've got this Old Testament understanding of I don't demand my rights. You've got this Greek usage of all of my impulses are actually submitted to the will of another, to the will of the master. The way that Aristotle talked about that submission is he, he spoke about it specifically as it related to Prowse. He said that it was the submission of your anger meaning that you had perfect anger if you were prouse. You were never angry about the wrong thing or at the wrong time. You were always angry about the right things at the right time, which meant in Aristotle's teaching, and I would argue the scriptures would agree, and, and even in the New Testament and the picture of what we see of a Jesus follower is that we then would be like Rio under the direction of the master, never angry about personal offenses or about ourself. Meekness doesn't rise up and go, well, I deserve better. Meekness doesn't fight for oneself first and foremost, that that is not the concern, but where justice is threatened, where another is mistreated, where the glory of God is impugned, meekness rises up and says, no further. You see, this is the picture of Prowse. 
And it's, a new, it's logical in the heart and the mind of Jesus. If you think about the Beatitudes, he started in saying, you see, blessed are the bankrupt of spirit. What you first have to realize, all of the blessings of God, all that he has in store for you is only available if you've come to terms with the fact that you are bankrupt in yourself and you can't accomplish it on your own. There are no blessings for anyone who is still managing their internal bank account. Like, I, I can pay this off, I can figure this out. He says it's bankrupt which leads us to last week, to mourning and grieving our bankruptcy. The fact that we actually are contributing to the brokenness of the world through our sin. He says, blessed are those who mourn because they're impoverished of spirit. And listen, if you have made it a practice to understand your bankruptcy before God and to grieve the ways that you are bankrupt of soul, you will be prouse. Do you follow me? If you are aware, grieving, I am so flawed in and of myself, contributing to the brokenness of the world around me, what I need to do is to submit my will to the master. What I need is to have all of my impulses and instincts to be covered and directed by another. What I need is not to rise up and defend what's mine because what mine is hopelessly bankrupt and flawed. It's not about defending me. And in fact, what the natural outcome of meekness being delivered into your world is this. If you really begin to inhabit meekness, you will never be defensive again. Zero defensiveness. This idea that, did you hear what they said about me? I have to go defend myself. I have to protect my posture and my reputation we get red around the ears and ready to fight because this person said a hard word to us or criticized us or said something that wasn't true and all of a sudden we think, I have to defend mine. It's going, ah, let's go back to square one. We're bankrupt of soul, we're grieving and we're entering the world in this posture going, there's probably some truth to it. And I'm not, I'm not in the business of trying to defend my reputation, I'm bankrupt. I'm just trying to be submitted to the will of the master. It looks a lot like David in a cave, not killing Saul, but with open hands going, it's not mine to take. It looks like David when he gets run out of town and, and there's actually a man that's going, after Absalom has rebelled against David and David is running out of town, there's a man that's throwing curses and hurling insults at him. And David's men say, do you want us to kill him? And David goes, no. He might be right. Time will tell. Prouse. And when you have zero defensiveness, do you know what happens? You are so profoundly teachable. Ah, this is the good life. Because when we walk through life and we realize that at every moment, the hand of a faithful father is present guiding and directing, and he will teach and instruct even through the moments where I am wrongly accused or mistreated or spoken of in, a, in an improper, a false way, that if I am under the hand of the master waiting for his whistle, his direction, going, I'm just yours. In that moment, I'm not defensive, and I am profoundly teachable. Meaning at every moment, especially the painful ones, you can learn profound lessons about what it looks like to be shaped into the image of Jesus. It is our lack of meekness that is robbing us moment to moment because we have bought this lie 
that we have to defend ourselves. We have to defend what is ours. We have to rise up and explain why we're so good and worthy of praise, why others ought to respect us and pay attention to our voice. If I could be real honest, I think there's a lot of marriages that are getting ravaged because there's just no prowse. If a husband and a wife would quit going, I just need to get mine. I'm going to defend my rights. When are you going to give me what I deserve? That posture divides, destroys, and tears. But when we show up with the position of, I'm under the authority of the master, bankrupt of soul, grieving my own sin, I'm going to wait for his whistle, and I am not here to defend me. <laughs> now that's an equation. If you have a husband and a wife, responding to the master and each other like that, that will renew a relationship. That will renew a friendship. You see, the invitation is to demand nothing. To be meek. To be prouse. It is the low, slow valley road. And beautifully, that path that Jesus is marking out leads to real prosperity. Not the fake thing that our culture is trying to sell us, that we kill ourselves thinking about the dream scenario that we're trying to carve out for ourselves, if we can just get the, the forever home and the, this plot of land, thinking if I could just, if I could get the, my little piece of earth and earn it, achieve it, grasp it, and hold on to it, that's prosperity. And Jesus is going, no, 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 no. Blessed are the meek. Look back at the text with me. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. He doesn't say overrun, grasp, achieve, earn. He says they will inherit the earth. That means it's a gift, and it's a gift based on relationship. You only inherit something if, if you're an heir, if you're in position relationally to receive. It is not demanding or overcoming or earning. It's just receiving. And what we are receiving is not just a pittance or a scrap. It is the earth. What Jesus is saying is, let me paint a picture of real prosperity, not this small thing that we think our competition and urgency and energy is going to lay hold of, but the grand thing that only your meekness will lead you to. He says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So when does this work? When does this happen? How does this work? I think it happens on two different timetables, and I want, I want us to just briefly sketch both of them out. It happens now. This is not only one of those Christian promises that we lay hold of and go, well, yeah, someday, you know, someday that will be true and we'll inherit the earth. There is real blessing associated with responding to the brilliance of Jesus' teaching even now, and I don't want us to miss that. What do I mean by that? Well, interestingly, in, in Psalm 37, I actually, I, I'm not going to read all of it to you, but I'll just, I'll, I'll encourage you to take a look at Psalm 37, um, verses 16 through 26. What they sketch out is real-time blessings for the meek. And I, I, I won't read it all, but I just want to highlight the fact that they're all in this world. He says things like, um, this meek person who's not engaging in what the wicked is doing, that I've seen the righteous, they're generous, and they give. I've never seen their children go hungry. What he's saying is God consistently shows up, and he delivers for the prouse. 
in this world. This is what the text in Psalm 37 that would be in the ears of the people would convince them of. But we also know it, if, you know, if you think about the great leaders in scriptures that we saw out of David, and if David isn't the greatest leader, then Moses was in the Old Testament. And what we know about Moses is he was the most meek man on the earth. And he led powerfully. He secured victories on behalf of the people. What we know, if we just look at present day writing about leadership, Jim Collins is one of the most widely respected authors on leadership, not writing from a Christian perspective or in reference to scripture. And what he says is this, the difference between what he calls a level four leader and a level five leader, a really good leader and the best leader. He says there's one thing that separates them and this is it. He doesn't say it. He doesn't use the term, but what he's defining is prouse. What he says is a level five leader is not about him or herself. They don't pound their fists and say it has to be my way or the highway. They actually listen. They're teachable moment to moment and they operate in humility. And as a result, they're not just excellent contributors. Everyone around them flourishes. That's the difference between a level four and a level five leader. If you quit making your life about yourself, what you will find is your leadership, your relationships, your work will flourish because people around you will be blessed and you will always be growing, growing stronger and smarter and wiser because you're teachable and you're not defensive and you're not so bound up in yourself. There's real blessings now. If you go read the research, you read Harvard Business Review, the things that they're looking for and saying what makes the best leaders, you come back and it, it traces back to the brilliance of the teaching of Jesus. It heals marriages. It leads to real blessing, walking in the brilliance of Jesus, that this is present realities. You will experience real blessings by rejecting what you hear culturally about what will lead to winning and prosperity and trust Jesus about what leads to the real path of prosperity and then watch divine blessing that you couldn't have anticipated meeting you in the midst. Don't miss this fact. Jesus is brilliant and not just because of what's coming in heaven. He's brilliant about how the world works and what's good for you. Blessed are the meek, they will inherit the earth. But secondly, it's not just now, it's also then. There is a fulfillment coming that is stunning, that is grand. We could turn to any number of passages. I'll just highlight a couple of them for you. You could look at Hebrews 13 and verse 14, that we are waiting for a city whose maker is God. The land that we will inherit is not any piece of land on this earth. It's not that I marked out my, my acreage here. It's that he has in his heart a city that we really are longing for that one day will be ours. In 1 Corinthians 3, verses 21 and 23, as he's dealing with people who are wrestling about kind of trying to map out their own piece of territory, he says, listen, all things are yours. They're arguing about who's greater, Paul or Apollos, and I'm a follower of this guy, and they're trying to map out their territory. He goes, listen, all things are yours. What a statement for Paul to make in the middle of this debate. What's he doing? He's actually saying what Romans 8 also affirms. You are an heir and a co-heir with Jesus. That Jesus rightly, as the son of God, will inherit everything. And he's going, and if you're with me, it's all yours. It's as absurd as going to dinner this, afternoon, or this evening with a multi-billionaire and at the end, them squabbling with you about the splitting of the tip. That when we live our lives thinking, well, but am I going to get mine? And is everything good? And, and, and Paul's standing in the middle going, 
It's all yours. All of it. Forever. You lay awake at night and you wring your hands and you wonder if you're ever going to get this thing or that thing or amass this stuff. And he's going, no, 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 just take a deep breath. It's all yours. You're going to inherit it all. There's nothing that you see that the Father of heavenly lights doesn't own and one day isn't going to deliver fully into the hands of Christians. This is why in 1 Corinthians 6, we're actually told that we will be the ones who judge angels. I don't even know what that means. Like what kind of, that we have such an elevated position in the economy of God that when he welcomes us home, he's gonna be like, all right, start sharing in the work. It's all yours. You need to execute some judgment over here. Help these angels understand. Like, it's all yours. You see, there's this realization that when we begin to understand our identity and our seatedness, our, our, where we are seated in the presence of God, this posture just becomes more and more foolish. You're defending your reputation. You're frustrated that somebody said that about you. You think you deserve more rights or more this or more that or you're not getting yours. It's all yours. And it will be forever. You see, what he's inviting us to, he, he, he's helping us realize throughout the scriptures what Paul is, is speaking in 1 Corinthians 3, what he's pointing in in chapter 6, what he's articulating in Romans 8, what he's actually inviting us to do is to see that it's actually the meekness of Jesus that has secured for us all of these blessings. You see, Jesus was the perfectly proust one. I just want you to consider with me, just let your mind scroll back through and understand how he has secured these blessings for us because what we know to be true of Jesus is that he was angry at all of the right moments and never at the wrong ones. That when he showed up in the temple, he flipped tables with a whip in hand because he was frustrated that the glory of God was impugned. But when he was arrested and wrongly accused, he looked at Peter and said, put your sword away. I'm not here to defend me. I'm here to stand on behalf of justice and the glory of God, the perfectly prouse one. And then when wrongly accused by the high priest and by Pilate, as people are mocking him and saying things that are just outright false, perfect poise, silence, like a lamb led to the shears. He didn't speak a word. He did not defend himself. He did not rise up. He did not pound his fist. He stayed in the posture of prowess. He was perfectly meek. And in so doing, he was paying the price for all of our folly, for all of the ways that we are unwilling to recognize our impoverishment of spirit and we rise up to defend ours. He bled and died and was laid in a dark tomb for three days and then in his resurrection glory. Look with me at Ephesians 1, 20 through 23. This is what he has to offer us. It says this, that Christ, when he was raised from the dead, he was seated him at his right hand. God seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places and he was far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and he gave him as head over all things to you, me, to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. What Paul is saying is that because he was meek all the way to the point of death, he has been raised to the highest point and all things are under his feet. And right now, he is the head of all things and he's ours, he's with us. And what he's saying is, listen, your inheritance is secure now and forever. 
lay down your rights. Demand nothing. Lay down your defensiveness. Become teachable. Quit demanding things in your marriage and in your relationships and in your career. Quit demanding things. Take the posture of meekness and watch the glories of the one who has secured all continue to tend to you now and forever. When we begin to meditate on and and receive that blessing, what we realize is that as I demand nothing, I receive everything. I am free in the fullness of his inheritance. Brothers and sisters, demand nothing. Receive everything. Blessed are the meek. They shall inherit the earth. Let's pray. We have things to repent of, God. And I pray that we would not shy away from that. That like those who are bankrupt of soul and willing to mourn, I pray that we would mourn the places and the ways that we have not been meek. There may be people that we need to go and repent to because we've had clenched fists and competitive spirit. I pray that we would lay that down, that you would forgive us for for being shaped by the kingdom of this world rather than by the kingdom of Jesus. And we thank you, Jesus, the perfectly meek one. Thank you for what you have done on our behalf. Thank you for coming and rescuing us when we were so bound up in our little pitiful worlds, exposing us to eternity and inviting us to live, to really live. We love you, Jesus. We thank you for what you've done. We pray that you'd be lifted high in our hearts and in our community. That we would walk in meekness for your glory. It's in your name we pray. Amen.